This is Scott Morey with GPG Advisors, and we are excited today to have Rick Clark with Brookfield, who's the Senior Managing Partner, the Chairman of Brookfield Property Group and Brookfield Property Partners. And I want to briefly, uh, Rick, before we kick off here, just give some high-level statistics, which I think are the sheer size of you guys is just astounding. $152 billion of assets under management. You've got roughly about 16,000 employees of which are, are under that in some fashion, about 400 million square feet plus of commercial space. And you've got every kind of imaginable asset class. I believe you've got just shy of 300 office buildings. You've got almost 30,000 units of multifamily. You've got almost 50 million square feet of industrial. And, um, of course, the retail stuff, through GDP and your other entities, you've got a huge asset base there. But it also includes student housing, you've got manufactured housing, you've got auto dealerships, and a range of other things. So I really want to thank you for your time today, and I'm excited about having the opportunity to, to learn more about your background. Well, thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Thanks for, thanks for having me. No, thank you again. And, and I want to kick off, and I, I, as you know, we've had a series of these, actually, and a lot of these podcasts are really about but understanding your background and, and how you got to where you are today. And, and so with that in mind, I, I want to go back in time actually to where you grew up because I believe, you've shared this with me before a little bit, and I was doing a fair amount of research seeing what more I could learn, but you grew up in, I believe, in Pennsylvania. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it is correct, but, I, but I'd have to say, this may be the most difficult question you asked me today. I, it, where I <clears throat> grew up, Excuse me. Believe it or not, is is a tough question to answer. My, my father spent the first half of his career and the bulk of my childhood working for a company called uh, Purina, and his job principally was to sell animal feed to farmers. And as a consequence of that, we lived in a lot of different rural communities, and ma mainly in Pennsylvania. But but I actually didn't live anywhere more than two years um, because he would take a new district or accept a transfer to the corporate headquarters in, in St. Louis, uh, and then then sent back out in the field. So, so all in all, by the time I graduated from high school, I actually lived in twelve or thirteen different different places. Gotcha. Now there there are some stories I I read. You've not told me these before that go back to either your father and your grandfather, and about I believe your grandfather was a was a farmer initially. Uh, as mine were actually, I'm thinking about in Kansas City and Missouri and stuff. But, um, but about his, your grandfather starting to get in development and residential development and and taking pieces of some of the land he owned and developed that. Do I have that right, actually, in the background? Yeah, you, you do, Scott. So, so both of my grandfathers were were farmers. One, one um, down, down in Texas grew watermelon, and and then my father's father in Pennsylvania. And you know, he he sort of learned that if he built uh, houses on his farm, he'd, he'd actually make uh, an okay living. So, so he started a real estate construction development business where he developed his land. And you know, ultimately, my three uncles carried on that business. And by the time I was 15, my father decided to, to join them. Uh, right as interest rates were hitting you know, 19 or 20%. So I don't have to tell you how that, that worked out for him. Um, but it was also sort of my first valuable lesson on the cyclical nature of real estate and financial markets, a lesson, honestly, that I've, that I've never forgotten and I carry with me today. So, so from the time I was 
15 through through college, I spent, you know, my summers as a laborer or a landscaper or a carpenter in, in this business uh, and, you know, became passionate about, about real estate. And honestly, I think when I got out of college, real estate's what I knew. So that's a, that's a career path I pursued. And talking about college, I think you had attended Indiana University. You graduated with a Bachelor of Science, but how did you pick that university and how did you pick that degree? Yeah, so, so it's actually Indiana University of, of Pennsylvania, and, uh, which is in western Pennsylvania, a town that I lived in for a couple of years. And, and I, you know, it's, I wasn't really um, really um, thoughtful about, you know, where I went to school, to be honest. I, I uh, you know, I don't mean to take anything at all away from the, from the school, but I, I lived in that town. I had moved away. And I wanted to go back to that town that I moved from. So when I was 15, I think I moved to eastern Pennsylvania and, and uh, set my sights on getting back to Indiana as fast as I could. So, so that's, that's where I went. And, you know, I studied uh, business and administration and, and accounting um, under the theory that uh, numbers were really important to real estate. Uh, so, you know, I, I basically wanted to have that as a background as I, as I pursued my career. So what's really interesting actually already is that, you know, a lot of people I've talked to before sort of fell into real estate. And what's fascinating to me with your background, with your, as you said, your both your grandparents, your uncles and your father and that, that you were, you were drawn to it early. And so you graduate from college and you end up at Penn Central Corporation. So you want to talk about sort of that transition and, and what led you there and then what your role was initially? Yeah, sure. So, so what led me there? So, I, so I graduated college in 1980, and and uh, for for those of your listeners who are a lot younger than I am, it, it was a pretty tough time in the economy. There weren't a lot of jobs. the The country was in recession. So, so my my joining my my interest in Penn Central really was twofold. One, they they owned a real estate development business called Arvita, which built homes in. Um, Florida, as well as California, as well as a lot of air rights from the bankrupt railroad, uh, which, which I was able to sort of work on. So, so that was one uh, thing that drew me to him. But, but honestly, it was, it was a tough job market and you know, the, one of the first uh, opportunities that I, that I got to work coming out of, coming out of college. So you know, any, any job was good at that point in time. And I think I'd read as part of that when you were doing special projects for them. And can you talk about what some of those projects were? Yeah, so, so I, I um, worked in an uh, in internal consulting and auditing group within that business. And, and so Penn, I'll get this a little bit wrong, but Penn Central was um, the reorganized company that, owned, uh, that went bankrupt and owned railroads. And it conveyed its rail assets to, to the government and it, Return um, received, I think, a billion dollars. It was either one or two billion dollars, and they they had a billion or two billion dollars of tax losses, which which they earned by by not doing very well. And so Penn Central set out on um, taking this money and these tax losses and and creating a, a conglomerate. So they bought a lot of different businesses. In addition to Arvita, which I mentioned before, they bought um, manufacturer of of mini blinds, uh, an offshore drilling rig 
company, a manufacturer of capacitors. They own Six Flags Corporation, the amusement park entity. And so, so my job was um, to go in and, and basically do a review of these businesses that the company was buying and make recommendations to management at Penn Central on how to improve the business, either to make them more profitable or more efficient, um, that kind of thing. So, you know, it was a great, great continuation of my, my learning from, from college. And, you know, basically I went from business to business anywhere from three to six weeks and learned how the business worked and, you know, worked with a smart group of people that um, you know, we're able to come up with recommendations on how the businesses could perform better. So, you know, as a result of that, I, I basically learned how, how businesses work or, or should work. So it's, it's, Didn't Arvita become ultimately what is St. Joe Real Estate Company out of Florida? Yeah, I, I think I, it did. I, I think so. I think you're right, Scott. Um, I've, you know, it was many years ago, and I've sort of lost track of it. But, um, but it changed hands a couple of times, I know for sure, uh, after I left Penn Central. And then how many years, because you went from there, I believe, to, to Olympia, New York, for the U.S. entity. How many years were you, were you at Penn Central? So, so I was only there for about three years, and then I left to join the finance group at Olympia, New York, which was the, the Reichman family company. And I, I think the, the Reichmans at one time were the world's um, richest family. Again, I might get this wrong. It was a long time ago, but I think they were... Their net worth was estimated at something like $12 billion, which, which back in those days was a lot of money. Um, not that it's not a lot of money today, but there are many who are far more wealthy um, today. And anyway, they, they um, were a sort of pro- prolific development company. They bought a portfolio in New York City for $300 million and financed just a couple of those assets for more than that a couple of years later, made a lot of money. You know, parlayed the money that they raised um, from financing those assets into uh, developing what was the World Financial Center in New York now, now called Brookfield Place, and also Canary Wharf in London. Um, so, you know, it was a great, great company. Um, I was able to join them on the rise and and be with them as, as they sort of uh, found themselves in a tough situation and were recapitalizing and and ultimately made my way to Brookfield when Brookfield re- recapitalized Olympia, New York. So let's go through, so you joined there uh, 83-ish, I would think, right, based upon the timeline. And, of course, the, the, uh, I was actually in Toronto. I remember it vividly, actually having breakfast, looking at the front paper in 1992 when the bankruptcy happened with them, right, which was just earth-shattering, actually, certainly for Canada, but I'd say <laughs> for a good part of the real estate world. But... If you if you take that nine-ish year period, you were there. Were you? How did your role change? Like, what are the types of things you you had done up to that point? Yeah. So, so Scott, just uh, you reminded me of kind of a funny story. So, I, I was, I, I remember, I um, <clears throat> I was down in Dallas. We owned a property in Dallas, and woke up in the morning, um, and was hosting a broker breakfast. We just to sort of introduce, reintroduce the property that we own to the brokerage community. And on the front page of the Wall Street Journal was an article about the bankruptcy of, of Olympia in, in York. And um, so I walked into this breakfast um, thinking, oh, my God, like, how, how am I going to deal with this? And so I, you know, I immediately started to apologize and say, look, we're, we're going to be able to pay commissions and, and uh, fulfill our commitments. Don't worry about it. And the brokers down there sort of stopped me and said something like, hey, this is Texas. <laughs> We've been through this before. Don't worry about it. 
So it was it was it was kind of a, a scary but interesting moment for me. So so so, so I was um, just to answer your question. I was with <clears throat> Olympia New York, um, you know, for for a long period of time. I started in finance, um, basically doing cash flow forecasting and project budgeting. Um, you know, made my way into doing feasibility studies for for development, um, including the feasibility study on our Manhattan West development, which is active in, in New York uh, today, 30 years later. Um, ultimately ended up in the leasing department, um, helping uh, that group um, sort of modernize. Uh, you know, I was sort of the financial analyst for a bunch of old school kind of brokers that worked in that group. Then worked my way up in the leasing group, um, became the asset manager for the non-New York U.S. assets, and ultimately the head of the uh, of leasing for the New York assets, and um, and then and then Olympia New York went bankrupt, and Brookfield recapitalized them. And after Brookfield came in, I you know I made my way to you know ultimately running that that part of the business um, you know shortly after they they acquired the company. So if you look at the, I want to go through the transition period because it's fascinating to me actually. So it was March '92, I think, when Paul Reichman, right, one of three brothers, but was running at resigns. Um, there's a gentleman I think that played a role in your life that I want to sort of get into a little bit, which and I may say his last name wrong, so I apologize, but John Zuccotti. Yeah. And if I remember, he's a fascinating guy, right? And you go back, he was the first deputy mayor in the 70s when New York City almost went through bankruptcy. And then I believe he became the attorney, and his firm did for the Reichman, certainly for the U.S., and it was it was just after March before the bankruptcy in April where Paul Reichman says, I got my hands full. I believe it's right, actually, and asked, no, I'm sorry, actually, it was before that. It was because of Canary Wharf in, in 1990. John's asked to take over more control of the U.S. assets. Effectively, in 92 in April, after Paul resigned, so you're kind of on your own, figured out, and then went through that transition, which became an entity, I think it was World Financial Properties, that then ultimately Brookfield took controlling ownership of. If, is my memory correct? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you went you went through that period, and I know, and I want to understand this better. And I know John later, you had gotten an award in uh, and it's a big deal actually in 2014 by the Na- National Jewish Health Humanitarian Award, and actually I believe John was the chair of that dinner. Sort of, I'm going back to more recent time, and sadly I know or believe that he passed. I think it was two years ago, but he he, he seemed like just. This is me just researching, actually, right? But it seems like he had to play a prevalent role relative to your growth and, and, and tradition. Is that true, one? And then, two, can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, so, so John, absolutely he did. He was really an important mentor of mine. And, um, and, and it's really interesting. There was always a lot of speculation as to why Paul Reichman brought John into the business, you know, and in part, and I think on the surface, he, he was the preeminent zoning lawyer um, in New York City, and, and um, <clears throat> the Reichmans had a lot, a lot of development going on in New York City and ambitions to do more. So on the surface, you know, that was a logical reason to bring John in to sort of head this business. But, but the other thing that John did, which was fascinating, is he was first deputy mayor of New York City in the 70s when New York City was a, effectively bankrupt. And the, and the inside guy in the city government that oversaw the restructuring uh, of New York City. So, 
So not long after he came to Olympia, New York, we found ourselves in this uh, dire financial straits, and and John, you know, presiding over the the recapitalization of this business and its ultimate sale to to Brookfield and its partners. Um, so you know, very very um, accomplished person, and great for me to you know to work with, and um, and you know I. He, he he was an important mentor to me, and you know one of the things that he taught me, which you know I'd share with you and your and your listeners, is is, is basically to to um, to sort of get the big picture, look at the big picture, and I'd maybe tell you one anecdotal story uh, about my career. Um, so, a couple of weeks before 9/11, I was anointed the the next CEO of. Um, of this business that you mentioned, World Financial Properties, that became ultimately Brookfield Office Properties. And um, so, you know, I was told I was going to be the next CEO, and then a week or two later, 9-11 occurs. And so I'm, you know, busy trying to figure out, okay, what does a CEO do, and, you know, what do I need to learn before I take this over in a couple of months? And then, you know, I find that at the time, about 50% of the value of the company was um, what was held in five assets immediately adjacent to the World Trade Center, uh, you know, all, all of which received meaningful damage. And we, we had these provisions in our lease that said if we didn't repair our properties within 12 months, the tenants could basically cancel our lease and walk away. So you know, given how much of the value was in these five assets, I'd say at the time... Um, uh, how much value was in the assets relative to the overall value of the enterprise at the time. We're far bigger today, but back then I'd say it was roughly half the value. Um, if we didn't get these buildings back up and running in a year, we probably would have been out of business. And so I remember, you know, the day after September 11th, John Zuccotti coming in and saying, you know, how's it going, Rick? And I'm saying, you know, I, I got this, John. I'm all over it. I'm going to get these buildings back up and running. Um, you know, on time to save these leases. And John just kind of looked at me, paused, and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> what is he about <laughs> to say? And he said, look, you can, you can fix the buildings, and of course we have to fix the buildings, but what about the future? And the future, like, what do you mean? He said, well, look, if you don't fix lower Manhattan, what, what's, what's the use of fixing the buildings? And, and he was right, and he you know, immediately saw that you know, this was a huge catastrophe for, for this business district in which we were invested in. And he immediately knew that you know, the government was going to have to get organized, but they don't get organized quickly. And it would take a while for them to appropriate the funds to build the teams, to hire the consultants, to review what needed to be done, and to approach the project. So, so John convinced me to allocate I think it was about a million dollars to to start the pre-planning for the future of Lower Manhattan, and then he convinced me that we needed to give space um, to the government, who and those that would be working on this project in our building, so that he could basically, you know, go up and down the elevator with with our ideas and plans to help give them a head start. And you know, at the end of the day, I'd say much of his work and our work uh, was incorporated into the plan and. You know, I think we we save them considerable time um, because of that. So, so you know, very important lesson from John was you know look at the big picture, look to the future, um, get out of the weeds. It's sort of important if you're going to be a CEO. This is a great story, and and I want to sort of ex- 
band or it's related or whatever about it, were there other people like John, you know, throughout your life and your career that have that have played an influential role, you know, in the decisions you made and, and what you've done? You know, for sure. And I, I think um, standing behind or beside or, or um, in front of any successful executive is, is, is a great mentor or, or a number of mentors. And I've certainly had many in my career. And, you know, one, one of my first was um, when I first joined Olympia New York was uh, a fellow by the name of Tom Palouche who, um, you know, he really helped me build the financial skills necessary for, successful, for a successful real estate career. Um, together, we, we, you know, we worked on and created for our business um, a spreadsheet-based tool. This is at the beginning of computers um, and financial models to evaluate and compare leasing transactions of different terms and, and space amounts. Um, you know, you know, pr- prior to this, people sort of did things, you know, on, on the back of the envelope or, or just from gut. And, and so, you know, he helped me understand the financial implications and how to look at a deal from all angles and, and compare different deals of different terms and that kind of thing. So, you know, very, very smart guy. Helped me, helped me learn, um, get the financial base that I needed. And, and, I, and I remember a couple of times when I was about to make really stupid decisions in my career where I'd sit down with him. The, fir- the first time was within Olympia, New York. I was kind of frustrated with the business. It was a little bit disorganized, and, and I was going to leave. And I was just going to leave. I think I was a little bit burnt out. And it was right at the time that I was switching, switching from one department. I had the opportunity to switch from the finance department into his group, which was the leasing group. And you know, I sat down with him and told him, "Look, I, I'm not going to come work for you. I'm just going to quit." And I think he looked at me and he said, "You know, you're an idiot." <laughs> Like what have you got to lose? Um, just come work for me, and, and you know, and I did, and um, and you know, and he was right. I didn't have anything to lose. If it didn't work out, I could have left then. But the second time, I you know, I went to see him, and and said, look, I, I'm thinking about going, you know, leaving Olympia, New York, and going to business school um, for for no particular reason. It wasn't because my career was floundering or I. I lacked any any skills or anything, and he, he just sort of looked at me and said, "What are you feeling inadequate? You know, stay here and work for me. You know, think think about what what it is you, you're lacking, what skills you're lacking, and if you're and I and I think that you'll you'll do better just continuing with your career versus you know taking a couple of year interruption to learn skills that you probably already possess. So um, anyway, um, for what it's worth, he he was another great mentor. Um, so. No, no shortage of those in my career. You know, they're great. Um, they're great stories. So let me let me totally shift gears now and talk about on a broader basis. Kind of, there's you've been through a bunch of different cycles, and of course, going back and as you said, in the late '70s and the '80s, which was an interesting period of time. And there's been multiple cycles since. And it's interesting to me too, by the way, when you look at your background and you look at John and others about. Um, having skills and, and the comfort level to understand what the cycles really mean. There's a lot of people in the down cycle are, you know, throwing everything out the window and, and um, you know, trying to find another career or a way to, you know, hold themselves together. And you guys have been very balanced, and you are certainly, in Brookfield in total and your approach kind of around that. And I, having been, you and I have had interaction a little bit in my previous life, but 
you definitely got this very long view of the world and, and the way and the companies of which you invest and interact with um, have that. And, and, and it's fascinating to me about, again, how you sort of ride those cycles. But I, we're going through, or we're always going through a cycle. depends on what asset class, right? But I'd love to get your overall thoughts about kind of what's happening today uh, in the space and about, you know, kind of your views around that. Is that fair? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, look, we're, you know, you're, we're eight years into a recovery, and typically at this point in time, we're, 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 you know, we're heading into a down cycle. And, you know, frankly, there's no, there's no clear sign of that at this moment. There's not a lot of overbuilding in the property sector. I mean, there isn't select locations around the world, but not many. Um, interest rates under control and aren't likely to go up anytime fast. Inflation is in check. Um, there's job growth. So, you know, there isn't any um, really apparent headwinds at the moment. And But I'd say the way that, that we run our business, in part, you know, I learned a lot of lessons early in my career from my father who decided to become a home builder when interest rates were 18 or 19 percent from Olympia, New York, when they overextended on development, financed everything on a short-term basis, and then couldn't roll their debt. So we, you know, we, we've learned as an organization, um, you know, and, and myself in particular before I was a senior executive, that, that real estate really is a cyclical business and changes occur very abruptly, and you just need to always think about the risk exposure when you're entering into a, a transaction. So, so you know, on, on the risk side, maybe I offer those comments, but like other industry trends um, th that I'm seeing out there, um, you know, I think there are a couple of, of things that, that are happening, happening. You know, first of all, the world's population is rapidly growing and reurbanizing. Um, and just to give you a couple of stats around this, in 1950, 725 million people or 29% of the world's population lived in cities. By 2014, that number grew to just under 4 billion, or 54%. And many are predicting by um, that within 25 years, there'll be 6 billion people, or a full two-thirds of the world's population, living in cities. So, so the population's growing and reurbanizing. And you know, I think this dynamic is going to create both challenges, but also opportunities in the real estate sector. So, so the second important trend um, is the rise of the millennials. Today, roughly one-third of the global workforce are millennials, and that's sort of 18 to 34-year-old um, age cohort. By 2020, roughly half the workforce is going to be millennials, and by 2030, a good 75% of the workforce is going to be this age cohort. And what, what's important about this is you know, they have different attitudes about how they work, how they live, you know, how they entertain themselves. Um, you know, this group was practically born with a smartphone in their hand, very, very different from, from my generation when I was growing up. So the things they want, the desire, um, you know, have to sort of be, be addressed. And, 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 you know, the way this age cohort works is they switch from, from work to play. You know, they may start a little bit later, take a two-hour break at lunch to go for a run or whatever, work until midnight, they want everything sort of close by, and they want to switch from one thing to, to another on a moment's notice. Um, so that's sort of the second important trend. And finally, I think, you know, there's, 
there's sort of a technological and innovation revolution going on within the real estate space. Um, I think for years, real estate businesses have um, have have been pretty good about um, a, a embracing technology and innovation in the back of the house. But now there's a lot of this um, this stuff coming, which is enhancing the consumer experience on the front end of the house. And you know, I think all of those things um, are really going to impact your business. Um, and we've been thinking a lot about that and, and responding to it and the things that we do within our portfolios. Well, I think, too, you know, there's the whole space as a service, which, of course, we work and and, and it's crossing asset classes in different ways, right? Um, and I think there's something about service as a space, meaning that more and more, it doesn't matter which asset class, everyone's looking about how to provide more services either directly to their tenant or extending beyond that if you're in retail about how you engage with the consumers. And and I saw a cycle, and I you know you did as well, in the late 90s, 2000, more retail, but a little bit beyond that, where a lot of money went out trying to figure that out. And, and today it's happening, but I think there's real sort of valuable opportunities. And, of course, you know, I think about movie theaters. You and I know if you go back, was it 10, 15 years ago, they said movie theaters are going to be dead, and there's more movie theaters today than there were then. And, and then you look at, Ticket prices, well, they're up, but they've also expanded services. So I think in Chicago, I want a comfy chair I can reserve. I want a beer. I want. So I, I yeah. feel like on these each asset class in its own way is going through a similar transformation in different ways. And, and um, you know, you and I can look back 10 years and sit here today and go, who would have thought this would happen? And I feel like if we look forward three, five, ten years, you know, we would say the same thing. Yeah, you know, for sure. And, and we, as we as an organization, one of the things that we're spending a lot of time and energy on is this concept of, of placemaking, you know, cr- creating these environments that combine, um, you know, uh, a good place to work, a good place to socialize, a good, you know, great social and amenity spaces for the people that work in our complexes to hang out and, you know, also place places to live and um, you know at the end of the day what what we need to do in, in the office sector for for our, the consumers of our office space is to create environments that help them attract retain and motivate uh, their workforce you know the difference between a great company and a marginal company is really all about its people and the competition for the best talent is pretty is pretty fierce so you know we we have 11 uh, places around the world that we consider Brookfield places. We renovated what was the World Financial Center I mentioned earlier in, in this conversation into, into Brookfield Place. It's got a great uh, food hall overlooking the Hudson River, uh, a French, um, uh, French market called the District, some great, a great selection of retail. And, and the retailers are all thriving. They're bucking the, the national trend and, and doing really, really well. And, you know, no matter whether you come to this complex on a Sunday morning or a Friday night or or during the week in the middle of the day, there's always a buzz going on. Or, uh, you know, within within the common and social spaces in, in the project. So it's you know, I, you know, we're, we're getting very positive feedback from our tenants, and it's the exact exact kind of place where they want to house their their offices. Um, well, you've got you certainly have um, amazing assets. Well, we're getting near near the end of our time, and so I wanted to ask one final question, which was: if you went back thirty plus years or whatever it is to yourself uh, when you were just graduating from college, what advice would you give yourself today? 
You know, I, I think uh, I, I think the important thing to be successful in a career is, you know, of course you need to have re- be reasonably intelligent. I think it's important to, to work hard, um, to be collaborative, to be a good listener. Um, I think good listeners lead to very fast learners. Um, and it's, you know, very important to, to have a lot of integrity. Um, you know, I, I think those that, that climb up the ladder um, are transparent, straightforward, honest people, and they're fair in their dealings with other and with others. And I, you know, I, I think the one thing that um, that I've observed in my career, which is almost a bit of a pet peeve for, from those that work for me, is I think it's really important to man up when you make a mistake. Uh, a number of people, you know, they can't accept the fact that they made mistakes, and it's fine. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. And it's just important to sort of acknowledge them and then and then move on. And um, so it would always be, you know, have a lot of, in- it's important to have integrity and just accept uh, when something's not perfect and, uh, and learn from it. Well, I would take that as sound advice. Um, well, I can't thank you enough, Rick, for doing this. I want to thank GPG Advisors for sponsoring this. And, uh, Rick, I hope we have the opportunity to have our paths cross again. Thank you again. Okay. Thanks, Scott. appreciate it.